JazzCast. Fun for all the family. With Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, Nick Rattenbury and Roy Smits. The JazzCast, March 2009, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the JodCast. I'm Nick Rattenbury and with me is Stuart Lowe and Roy Smits. Hello. Hi Nick, hi everybody. So in the show this time, we interview Dr. Gijs Nelemans of the Red Bar University Nijmegen about Lisa. We chat about some recent launches, but first we have a final update on the upcoming 100 hours of astronomy. Yes, now as people will remember, hopefully, this is the International Year of Astronomy, a chance for the entire world to participate in astronomical activities, to look up, perhaps for the first time, some people, and... As part of that, one of the main events of the year is the 100 Hours of Astronomy, and I caught up with Mike Simmons to find out more about it. Right, we're very pleased at the Jodcast to be joined by Mike Simmons, the President of Astronomers Without Borders and the co-chair of the 100 Hours of Astronomy. So, hello Mike, welcome to the Jodcast. Hello Stuart, glad to be here. Now Mike, the 100 Hours of Astronomy, we've been mentioning it a few times on the Jodcast already this year. Um, It's billed as 400 years in the making. What exactly is the 100 Hours of Astronomy? Well, uh, the 100 hours of astronomy is uh, 100 hours of continuous events around the world, the largest scientific outreach event that uh, has ever taken place with people, observatories, enthusiasts, uh, science facilities, and and all sorts of things, uh, bringing astronomy awareness and understanding to the public. And can you tell us um, a little bit about what sort of things specifically will be happening during this 100 hours? You're saying that there are some webcasts and the star parties. Well, we'll start off with an opening event featuring a tour of an exhibition where Galileo's telescope is on display. And that's the instrument that started it all 400 years ago. It's the reason that 2009 was chosen as the International Year of Astronomy. Moves on to some science center webcasts with debates, discussions about... uh, Topics of interest in astronomy. And then the, the two largest events, the 24-hour global webcast from research observatories, moving around the Earth from one to another, 80 different telescopes called Around the World in 80 Telescopes, and then the 24-hour global star party taking place on Saturday, April 4th. Again, as darkness sweeps around the world, we hope to have as many as a million people looking through telescopes in most of the countries of the world that night. And how will people be able to to find out about events near them? Well, on our website at 100hoursofastronomy.org, we can uh, we have lists and maps of the events everywhere. You can zoom in on the maps or make a list of the events in your country and find the ones that are closest to you. Right, and can people add their own events to that list? Sure. We encourage everybody that's doing anything related to 100 Hours of Astronomy to register their events on our site. There will be certificates of participation, news, uh, inclusion of people's reports, uh, even some awards. So we want everybody to get on the site as much as possible. And we'll have a closing ceremony at the International Astronomical Union's General Assembly in Rio de Janeiro in August to wrap this up and, and thank everybody that's taken part. Right, and are there any particular types of events that you that people should be registering, or can people say just register that they're taking a telescope to the local park or or town square or shopping centre or something? 
Well, taking uh, your telescope to the local park or shopping center or something is exactly what we want. We want to get out all those telescopes that might not ordinarily be available for the public to look through as many as possible on this one particular night or in any of the nights of 100 Hours of Astronomy if you can't do it on that particular night. Any event is worthwhile. We we hope to get a record of how many people have actually looked through telescopes. And it doesn't need to be a big event. One telescope might have a hundred people looking through it, and that's a hundred new lives that have been touched by astronomy that never had been before. Yeah, that's a, a great thing. And if people take um, photographs during their the events that they're hosting, can they send them to the Hundred Hours of Astronomy? Well, we do have a photo gallery that's available now, and we hope that people will be including those. We're going to have a YouTube channel as well for those who take video. There will be reports to go along with the the pictures that will be in the photo gallery. And uh, we may even have some live webcasting from star parties, but that's still in the works. Right. Sounds like it's going to be an extremely exciting event. I think the people who've got telescopes that are sitting covered in dust and cupboards in the kitchen, they should probably get them out for this. Well, that's what we hope. We, We have lots of people who are enthusiasts who take their telescopes out onto the sidewalks regularly, and they're all coming out for this everywhere around the world. But we want to get all those other ones out there, too. If you're not ordinarily looking through it, give somebody else a chance to to look through it then as well. So after the 24-hour Global Star Party, um, I don't think events stop there, do they? No, actually, there's one more day left. It's through the day on, on Sunday, April 5th. And this has been designated as Sunday, a day to focus on the sun. And this is being organized by the Solar Physics Task Group of the International Year of Astronomy. This is a day when when uh, everybody will be updated on or educated about uh, things involving our closest star, the sun, something that, of course, everybody takes for granted but is critical to our lives. And there's so much that can be done with uh, some solar observing through safe solar filters as well as uh, solar observatories providing some online content and things like that. Thank you for giving us an overview of this. Can you just remind us of the dates and times again? The event is over four days, April 2nd through April 5th. The schedule and the different programs are available on our website as well, starting at various times depending on where around the world or what is going on. Uh, there, there are more details on the website. We do have a mailing list as well, but I think that's a, a general overall look. I just want everybody to realize that this has never been done before. We're not even sure just how big it will be, but it has gotten attention everywhere. So we want everybody to come out and be a part of this really unprecedented event. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Stuart. Okay, so that's fascinating stuff. We're looking forward to seeing and hearing about the 100 Hours of Astronomy when it kicks off on April the 2nd. If you have got an event that you think would be appropriate for the 100 Hours of Astronomy, then do go to the website 100, that's 100hoursofastronomy.org and register your event. And if you are uh, listening to this and you do have an event and you are registering for the 100 Hours of Astronomy, let us know. And we'll advertise it as well as a Jodcast listener involved in the 100 Hours of Astronomy. Joining us now is Douglas Pierce-Price of the European Southern Observatory. Hello, Douglas. Hi, Stuart. Now, you're involved in a particular part of the 100 Hours of Astronomy called Around the World in 80 Telescopes. Can you tell us 
a little bit about what that involves? Yeah, so um, Around the World in 80 Telescopes is a live 24-hour webcast from research observatories. So it's taking part during during the 100 hours of astronomy, uh, and it's 24 hours long. And the idea is that we will go around the planet visiting about 80 telescopes um, to just find out what professional astronomers are working on right now, you know, during that night or or in the case of solar observatories during the day. Um, so the idea is really to give viewers a chance to see what the researchers are getting up to, find out what they're looking for, what they're studying, what their jobs involve at the observatories and all that kind of stuff. The, it's builders around the world in 80 telescopes. Have you really got hold of 80 telescopes? We have, yes. Um, there's, there's slightly less than 80 slots in the schedule. So there's sort of 70-something slots, which are, I suppose, observatories more or less. But then some of these, some of these observatories have more than one telescope at them. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're, I, I think that we should be actually somewhat in excess of 80 telescopes, I believe. Wow, very good. And when, when will this be happening exactly? What dates? So this is happening um, on the 3rd and 4th of April, so more or less in the middle of the 100 hours of astronomy. And uh, to be precise, it starts at 9 o'clock GMT or UT on the 3rd and goes on until 9 o'clock, again, GMT on the on the 4th. Uh, but at least, for example, for, for listeners in the UK, then this will be 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. Given that it's the beginning of the working day in Europe, um, whereabouts are you starting? Well, as you say, it's it's going to be uh, daylight in Europe, but um, we're actually starting in Hawaii. So we're beginning with um, many of the of the large observatories on Mauna Kea, um, and we'll start with those. So we have, for example, uh, Gemini North, Subaru Telescope, UKIRT and JCMT, uh, the Keck Observatory, um, Canada, France, Hawaii, and the Submillimeter Array, and the Caltech Submillimeter Observatory. We'll see all of those, and then we're going to head westwards from there around the planet. So after that, very roughly speaking, we'll head towards New Zealand and Australia, uh, then uh, Asia in the form of Japan. Um, we'll also be featuring a telescope in China later on. Uh, then as we move further around, we'll see Europe and Africa, and then the Americas, and we'll finish up on the, the west coast of the US 24 hours later. So a fairly packed schedule. Um, I guess this involves an awful lot of effort on your part in coordinating all these different observatories. I don't think this has ever been done before, has it? As far as I know, it's not been done before, no. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've got a lot of emails and phone calls flying around, um, first of all, setting up the schedule and speaking to all the people at the observatories. But it's been very interesting. It's been actually a wonderful way to, to get in touch with, uh, with all of these different observatories and find out a little bit about them. And so this is something that we hope viewers of the webcast, uh, whether they watch a stretch of it or whether they just dip into it, um, will also be able to find out about all the different kinds of observatories that there are out there. Now, you said about people being able to dip in and out. Is there any plan to record this so that people can watch after the event? Yes. What, what will happen is that we are... Um, we're going to be streaming this. It'll be on the 100 Hours of Astronomy website, and we're using um, the company Ustream.tv for uh, for streaming this. And so whilst it will be going out live, at the end of each segment, it will be cut up and it will appear in an archive form. So you'll be able to go back and visit uh, and you know view again the... Um, the individual segments for each observatory. Right, so for those of us who, who are asleep when the observatory we like um, appears, we can go and watch it afterwards. Yeah, but so, so you're not going to watch the full 24 hours for us? <laughs> well, I'm going to try. This is during the 100 hours of astronomy, so I'm not sure I'll be able to stay awake for the whole 100 hours without sleeping. Okay, well, do your best anyway. I will.
So as well as the telescopes on Hawaii, can you mention a few of the other highlights of observatories around the world or even beyond the world that, that are taking part? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, naturally, we're going to be visiting because I'm, I'm based at ESO, and, and um, therefore I'll mention that we're going to be visiting some of our observatory sites in Chile. So, for example, the the very large telescope and La Silla, um, and uh, also Apex and Alma. Um, but as you say, it's not just telescopes on Earth; it's telescopes off Earth. So there's lots of space-based missions. Obviously, uh, Hubble Space Telescope is in the schedule, but many other space missions as well. And um, Particularly interesting, going back down to Earth, is that if all goes to plan, we hope to be visiting Antarctica. Sometimes people don't realise, but Antarctica is a, a great place to do astronomy from. It is. There's quite a few observatories appearing down there at the moment. Absolutely. Well, this all sounds like an amazing event that everyone around the world can participate in by going to the website. So you said that will be available on Ustream? Yes, it's going to be on Ustream. Um, and also you'll be able to find the player embedded on the 100 Hours of Astronomy website. Uh, and we'll encourage people also to, to take that player, which you can embed on your own site and, and put it on your own site if you want people to be able to watch it. Oh, excellent. Very good. So we advise people to go to 100hoursofastronomy.org and follow the links closest to the time to the Ustream channel. Um, and we will also put a link on our show notes so that people can find that if they can't remember all these details while listening, while jogging along the road or driving their car. So Douglas, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. Now, at one of these 100 Hours of Astronomy events, there will be amateur and professional astronomers on hand to answer your questions. But at the Jodcast, we can help right now with Ask an Astronomer. Ask an Astronomer time, and thanks again to Dr. Tim O'Brien, who's come along to answer your questions. Thanks for coming, Tim. No problem. First question is from Bruce, and he writes that, I have a small telescope, only 75 millimeters, presumably that's the aperture of the lens, along with three eyepieces, 20 millimeter, 12.5 millimeter, and 4 millimeter, and a three times Barlow lens. My problem has been getting a good view of Venus, I can easily focus my telescope on the lunar surface, but when I look at the Venus, I can see the veins of the reflector and a very fuzzy planet. Do I just need to be more patient? Hmm. Yeah, well, okay. So I think there's a, there's a few things probably worth discussing here. It's just about telescopes in general a little bit. Hmm. Um, and as you say, he says, first of all, he's got a small telescope, only 75 millimeters. Hmm. Uh, now, as you say, I think I think the uh, I think what he means there is the diameter of it's probably a lens. It could be a could be a mirror that's been used to get a light, but it's probably a lens at that size. That's relatively small. It's about three inches uh, in in diameter. So that's what we call the aperture of the telescope, um, and it's a very important parameter of any telescope if you're thinking about buying one. It's the sort of size of the mirror or the, or the lens that's been used. The bigger um, you get the uh, the better in a sense because it gathers more light. It's basically telling you the light gathering power. Uh, and obviously if you're trying to see uh, faint things, then what you want to do is gather as much light as possible to see them. So the bigger the aperture, the larger the diameter of the lens or mirror, then then the, the, the better in that sense. Of course, the, the downside is that they're more expensive. Yes. Um, it goes, the price goes up quite rapidly with, 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 uh, with, with the aperture size. Um, and also they're a bit more impractical to carry around. Mm. So actually it's quite handy to have a small telescope because you can just, you know, get outside quickly with it and have a quick look at something. Big telescopes are a, are a pain, uh, to, to, to move about. Um, he then mentions, um, uh, along with three lenses, 20 millimeter, 12.5 millimeter, and 4 millimeter. Now, here by lenses, he's talking about what we call eyepieces. 
So these are the small, um, they're usually a combination of lenses that sit in the back of the telescope or at the side of the telescope somewhere, which you put your eye to. Um, and that basically uh, refocuses the light so your, your eye is able to focus it on the back of your, your retina. Um, so what's being quoted there when he says 20 millimeters, 12.5 and 4 millimeters, he's actually talking about the focal length of the eyepieces then um, rather than their apertures because they use the apertures are typically a centimeter or so I, w I would say. Um, now there's, there's the way that works, the way this works, the other, the, we've talked about aperture, we've talked about collecting area of your telescope and that's an important parameter. The other thing is magnification and quite often what you see when, when telescopes are advertised is they'll say, you know, 300 times magnification, it's brilliant. Now, in fact, you know, that's not the thing to concentrate on. <laughs> in fact, often the more magnification you get at some point, Yes, it works. You'll see things bigger. Uh, but then you get diminishing returns because actually all you end up doing is sort of zooming in on the atmospheric turbulence, basically, and you get a really low quality image at very high magnification. Yes. The way in which you change the mag what matters for magnification for your telescope in this case is the focal length of the main telescope and the focal length of the eyepiece you're using. So in fact, it's the ratio of the two. So he doesn't actually tell us here what the focal length of his main telescope is. Um, it might be something like 500 millimeters or something. So what will matter is the ratio of that to the focal length of the eyepiece. And obviously you can change eyepieces. As he says, he, he has three here. So if he'd used his 20 millimeter eyepiece, and let's say his focal length of his telescope was 500 mil, then it's the ratio of the two would be 500 divided by 20 um, would give him a factor 25. So he'd have a, a factor 25 magnification there. If he then swapped his uh, 20 mil eyepiece for his 4 mil eyepiece, um, then he'd be going down by a factor of five in the focal length of his eyepiece, um, so up by a factor of five in magnification. So his magnification would go bump up to 125 then, which is, you know, probably about as big as he'd want, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and he does have, he mentions a Barlow lens, so for those that are interested, a Barlow lens actually just, he says, he says a three times Barlow. A three times Barlow would, would basically effectively increase his magnification by another factor three. Uh, you sit it at the back, your eyepiece sits in that, it sits between your eyepiece and your uh, and your main telescope. Um, so I think that's the important things. Aperture is, is light gathering power, um, and then magnification, well, you can adjust it by using different eyepieces. And don't over-magnify. Yes. Uh, now, whether what's happening here is he's over-magnifying, so he's seeing a fuzzy planet because he's actually seeing the sky turbulence, you know, the atmospheric turbulence, that's a possibility. Mm. Um Another possibility is he hasn't got it focused quite right, I guess. Um, he needs to get pinpoint sharp star images. Try focusing on a star, I would say, uh, because that should be as, as pinpoint as possible. Um, and then go and look at the planet um, afterwards. Uh, and the other possibility is that he's taking, he's, he's sort of taking his telescope outside from a warm room out into the back garden or something and it's cold outside and the temp the telescope is not at the same temperature as its surroundings and what that does is it results in um, turbulence in the air around the, over the optical surfaces, over the mirror, the lenses and so on and that will reduce, reduce the quality of the image you'll get. So let your telescope cool down to the sort of temperature of the surroundings and you'll get, if you can afford to wait, you know, half an hour or an hour or, or so, then you'll get a much better image. Yeah. I guess the the most likely reason is the, the higher magnification you go with these small telescopes, the image quality does not also improve. It also, it, it's not constant. Yeah, the optics are not going to be perfect, of course, because you're not spending huge amounts of money, presumably, on it. So, yeah, you, you'll start to pick up the imperfections in, in the quality of the optics itself. Yeah. 
Great. Well, thank you very much, Bruce, to, for your question. Our next question comes from Kevin Rowe. Hi, my name is Kevin, and I've just turned 12 years old. My dad and I listen to the Jodcast every month, and I love it. My dad has been an amateur astronomer for a long time. My question is about white and red dwarf stars. Is a red dwarf simply a white dwarf that has cooled down, or is it created by different circumstances? Well, the simple answer is, thanks Thanks for that, it's a great question. Um, the simple answer is that it's not, a red dwarf is not a white dwarf that's cooled down. Um, they are They are different, um, and perhaps I'll just try and explain why, why that's the case. Um, when stars are formed, we think they're formed out of uh, clouds of gas and dust, uh, and what you get typically would be a range of masses of star that's formed. So you wouldn't form all stars of exactly the same size in terms of their mass. Um, you'd form a range of masses from from stars rather less massive than the sun, maybe a tenth the mass of the sun, up to stars that maybe as high as a hundred times the mass of the sun. Now, there's a distribution of masses, and in fact it turns out that the shape of that distribution is still a subject of research. People, astronomers, work on exactly what the details of that are and how it changes from one set of circumstances to another. But typically, uh, what we do know is that there are many, there are more low mass stars formed than there are high mass stars. Um, so in fact, you know, you hear people talking about the sun being a typical star. It's not really true. Um, the sun is actually somewhat more massive than, than a typical star. Most stars that we see around are actually less massive than the sun. Now it's those stars that we call red dwarfs. They're stars that are uh, cooler than the sun, they're not burning, they're not using up as much energy in the cores as the sun does, so actually they're rather cooler, the surfaces are redder, um, they're less massive, they're also smaller. Um, so those stars are the red dwarfs. They're stars pretty much like the sun, turning hydrogen into helium at their cores, but less massive, uh, therefore not burning at as high a rate, and therefore not as hot, and therefore appearing redder. So that's the red dwarf. It's a star pretty much like the sun, but less massive. Now a white dwarf is something rather different again. Uh, a white dwarf is the end point of stellar evolution. So it's at the sort of end of the life of a star. And if I can just sort of briefly summarize what will happen to the sun, that might, that might help. Um, so the sun at the moment, the energy source of the sun is nuclear fusion. It's turning hydrogen into helium at its core. That's where the energy comes from that makes it shine. Um, and at some point in the future, maybe about five billion years into the future, it's going to run out of hydrogen fuel at its core. And it'll turn all the core into helium, effectively. Uh, at that point, the central part of the star starts to collapse in on itself. It's got no more energy generation to hold it up against its own weight. So it starts to collapse in, contract a little bit. It gets hotter, it gets denser. Um, it'll actually be able to start to use a new fuel. It'll start to use helium. And the helium will, will burn to make heavier elements. Um, so in the case, of, there's various different nuclear reaction networks that go on, but there's basically um, helium being turned into carbon is the, is the main process. Um, as that happens, um, the outer layers of the star are pushed out, um, so the star expands, the sun would expand, it'll become a red giant. Um, so again, the outer layers have expanded out, they actually, the outer parts cool down, it looks redder, but it's much bigger, hence, hence the term red giant. Uh, so um, the central part of the star now burning, burning helium into carbon. When the helium runs out, in the case of the sun, um, there's no more nuclear fuel available to it. And so the central part of the star collapses in on itself, and it makes a very dense object called a white dwarf. Um, it's about the size of the Earth, weighing, you know, maybe half as much as the sun, something like that. Um, 
the outer parts of the star that have expanded way out. In the case of the Sun, it may even get as large as the Earth's orbit around the Sun. So the Earth itself, certainly Mercury and certainly Venus, maybe the Earth itself will be engulfed by the Sun. Remember, this is five billion years, so not nothing much to worry about um, for us. Um, the central parts basically drift off into space. Um, the white dwarf is exposed at the core. So this is where all those nuclear reactions took place, remember. Incredibly hot, incredibly dense, very bright, white hot, hence white dwarf. Um, that light illuminates, it shines onto the gas that's been ejected by the, by the red giant from the outer layers of the red giant. And we make, it makes what we call a planetary nebula. Some very gorgeous pictures of planetary nebulas available on the web, like the, uh, the cat's eye nebula or the helix nebula, for example. Be- beautiful things. But down in the middle of them, you can see the white dwarf glowing away incredibly, incredibly hot. Not as bright as, as it might be because it's actually very small. So something the size of the Earth, it's not going to, it's not going to actually put out as much energy, but it's very hot. So it's very sort of white hot, if you like. Now, it turns out that those things will cool down gradually. They're not, they're no longer um, making their own energy from nuclear fusion. So there's no, no nuclear fusion going on. They are dead stars, white dwarfs. Um, but they're very hot. That's why they're shining. Anything hot will, 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 will shine, will radiate. Um, but as it radiates, it's losing energy. And so it will gradually cool down. It turns out that for white dwarfs, it takes a very long time for these things to cool down. Um, even as long as the age of the universe. So in fact, even the oldest white dwarfs, we don't think are cooler than a few thousand degrees. So I guess the very oldest white dwarfs one might be radiating might actually be just about red dwarfs because they've cooled down to a temperature that would mean that they'd typically be a, be a reddish colour. There wouldn't be very many of those around. Your typical white dwarf is rather younger than the age of the universe, um, but will take a very long time to cool down to eventually become a black dwarf. You know, it will eventually yeah. cool right down and will be completely invisible. So I hope that I hope that explains the difference between your typical red dwarf and your typical white dwarf. I think it's very good. I think Given has uh, identified a, a little bit of laziness on the part of the astronomers calling anything lighter than the sun a dwarf, but they're not all, they don't have exactly the same uh, evolution, do they? I mean, we even have brown dwarfs, which are again uh, substellar mass objects, which haven't got enough mass to, uh, to begin fusion at the core. So again, a different kind of dwarf, but uh, a, yeah. a different thing. Yeah, I mean the small. I mean, I guess it does mean it does mean a small star, but it's certainly they're not the not necessarily arisen from the same root at all. Yeah, very different things in some cases. So thank you very much again to Kevin and to Bruce for their questions. Thanks very much again to Dr. Tim O'Brien for answering them, and you too can ask your questions of the Jodcast at Jodcast.net. Click on the contact tab and send your question to us. Thanks very much again, Tim. Thank you. Yes, thanks again, Tim. And, of course, if you have any questions about astronomy, astrophysics, cosmology, what you see in the night sky, you can always ask your questions of us here at the Jodcast by going to the Jodcast webpage, www.jodcast.net, and clicking on the Contact tab and writing your question. And we will give that to Dr. Tim O'Brien or any of our team of expert astronomers who will answer any of your questions to do with astronomy. So keep those questions coming in. You can use the webpage. You can even write it on the back of a postcard and send it in to us. We will answer your questions as best as we can and as soon as we can. Thank you to everybody who has been sending in their questions, and we look forward to seeing many more. And we look forward to more postcards. Eh? Decorating the wall of our Jodcast broom cupboard. Yes, yeah, very nicely too. And there's plenty of room for more. Yeah, so if you are on holiday, for instance, and thinking of us here in cold, drizzly, grey Manchester, even though it is spring, <laughs> and you're in a nice, more pleasant part of the world, then do send us one of uh, a postcard at the, the local tourist shop. And, uh, yeah, 
and let us know where you are on the planet. And talking of planets, NASA have recently launched a new mission to hunt for Earth-like planets. Yes, indeed. This is the long-awaited and anticipated Kepler mission. Kepler is a space telescope designed to detect extrasolar planets through the transit method, where a planet, if it exists, going around a nearby star, passes between us and that background star, blocking some of the light. Kepler will be staring at about 100,000 nearby stars, looking for that periodic dip in light as a companion planet passes between us and the star. So we're hoping that Kepler will be able to find Earth-like planets, namely planets with roughly the same mass orbiting at a distance of approximately one astronomical unit. So that's the distance that the Earth orbits our own sun. So Kepler is going to be pretty much the first uh, space mission that will be capable of finding exact Earth analogues. Very good. And these 100,000 stars that you talk about are in a particular patch of the sky, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. And they're also quite nearby, so they're not thousands of light years away. They're relatively close. So if you find one, you might actually go there one day. If you can handle being on a spaceship for, oh, I don't know, generations, <laughs> then yes, possibly. <laughs> and the launch of NASA Kepler occurred on the 7th of March at 3.49 a.m. GMT, which was quite late for us. I did manage to stay up and watch it, but fell asleep fairly quickly afterwards. Now, as we record this episode of the Jodcast, ESA's Goche spacecraft, which stands for the Gravity Field and Steady State Ocean Circulation Explorer, a bit of a mouthful, no wonder they're calling it Goche, was supposed to have launched yesterday. So they had a, a bit of a problem in the very final stages of the countdown, I think, Roy, didn't they? Yeah, that's true, yes. So they're planning to try again today, and as we're recording this, we don't know if that will be successful. So best of luck to them with that launch today. Now, Roy, what, what exactly is Goche going to do? So Goche is going to map the Earth's gravity field in an extremely extraordinary detail. So one of the applications of this is to do proper sea level research to track climate change. So they're doing sea level research from space. Yes, indeed. It's a very interesting uh, way of doing this. And because it has to measure the Earth's gravitational field so accurately, it actually has to be as close to the Earth as possible. That is why it is put at an orbit of 200 kilometers rather than usually 400 kilometers or higher. And that means that to um, to withstand the friction, even though there's very small friction, the little friction that there is at this altitude... This is from the Earth's atmosphere? From the Earth's atmosphere, yes. Um, they had to build it with uh, a bit of the shape of a Formula One car. So therefore it's du sometimes dubbed the Formula One of spacecrafts. Ah, so they've had to take into account some aerodynamics in, in the building... Of yes, the spacecraft. Exactly. Which usually you don't have to worry about. You see in sci-fi films all these very sleek spacecraft which go around in space where there's no need for aerodynamics because there's no air. Yes. But in this case it's actually required. It actually is required indeed, yes. So from the state of the art in space missions, we move now to the future. Roy spoke with Hayes Nellemans about the LISA space telescope. I'm at the Redbauer University of Nijmegen, which is in the Netherlands. With me is Dr. Gijs Nelemans, who is from the Department of Astrophysics. Gijs, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. No problem, you're very welcome. So I understand you know an awful lot about a proposed experiment called LISA. Can you explain to us what LISA is? Yes, so uh, LISA is a very ambitious project, but it's also a very exciting project, because uh, if it will materialize, which we'll all hope, it will be a really new way of studying the universe. So what does LISA stand for? 
Uh, yeah, that's an abbreviation of Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. And Lisa is a nice name. So Lisa is an instrument to try to detect gravitational waves. And gravitational waves are waves emitted by stellar or supermassive objects in the universe because of the theory of general relativity as uh, uh, developed by Einstein. He predicts that if there are uh, very massive, very compact objects, in particular if they are accelerated, and one of the ways to do that is to put them in a binary system, so two objects orbiting around each other. Let's for the moment say two black holes to immediately uh, make uh, life very exciting. Then they emit gravitational waves. And what it actually means is that the orbit of the two objects around each other is very slowly changed because the uh, system loses some energy and angular momentum. And angular momentum is sort of a measure of how things go around each other. And this is lost in these gravitational waves. You can't see them, so you can't actually detect them with sort of the ordinary telescopes that people have with uh, mirrors or also not with telescopes that detect radio emission. So telescopes that detect electromagnetic waves. That's right. So it's not electromagnetic waves. It's actually something that's very difficult to imagine because Really, the way Einstein has described the universe, or basically the, the gravitational universe, is that gravity is properties of what's often called space-time, and you should imagine this as something like well, the space we live in, and these gravitational waves are actually perturbations of the space itself, and this, this always sounds very weird, but basically you have to uh, imagine something which is uh, often said, uh, imagine that space is a, a sheet, a sheet of, uh, of paper or, or a sheet for on the bed, and then these gravitational waves are ripples in this sheet. If you live on that sheet and somebody else also lives on that sheet, if a gravitational wave passes, something happens between the relative position of the two observers. And that's exactly the same how gravitational waves work in three-dimensional space. And that means that if you would have two observers, the distance between the two observers would gradually change when a gravitational wave passes. So how can LISA observe these gravitational waves? The way uh, LISA observes the gravitational waves is using lasers. So the gravitational waves make small deviations in the distances between observers, or in the case of LISA, when LISA is a space mission between the spacecraft, these are extremely small, these deviations in the distance. So they, LISA measures this by sending laser beams from one spacecraft to the other, um, but with these lasers they can measure the changes in the distance because the speed of light is constant. So if the distance becomes a little bit larger, it takes a little bit longer for the light to go there. And you have then to measure, to imagine that the distances that they uh, have to measure, so the changes in the distance, are extremely small. So the, the spacecraft for LISA are expected to be, or the plan is to have them 5 million kilometers apart, so really far away, and still they, uh, the, the change in the distance will only be of the order of the size of an atom. So they have to observe something incredibly small over a huge distance. That's right, that's right. So that's one of the, the problems of the of this whole project, is that it's very technically challenging to do. But the good thing is that actually similar experiments happen on Earth, and I'll explain in a, in a moment why what's the difference between doing it on Earth and in space. And the, these experiments on Earth, of course, don't have arms of uh, 5 million kilometers, but only of 4 or 5 kilometers. Uh, but still they actually want to measure the same relative 
displacement of the mirrors in these experiments. So that means that they have to measure, the absolute measurement has to be a million times more accurate. So that's good for the LISA project because it means that the techniques used to actually do the measurements are very well developed. So there's no problem there whatsoever to do it. The big problem is, of course, to do it in space. So you can't actually, if something goes wrong, you can't go there and change something because the idea is that uh, LISA will be in an orbit around the sun, sort of trailing the Earth about 20 degrees angle between the Earth and LISA. So this is a, a, a huge distance. The other thing is that over the 5 million kilometers, if you send a laser, if you have a laser pointer, for instance, and you send a laser to the blackboard or the whiteboard, then you don't see very much happening. But if you would send a laser over 5 million kilometers, actually the beam of the laser widens enormously. So the spacecraft at the other side only sees a tiny fraction of the light that's emitted. So this is a problem that you actually have to have relatively large telescopes. I mean, not large in terms of if you look at telescopes on Earth, but something like 40 or 50 centimeters or a meter in order to detect simply the laser beam of the other spacecraft. So and that makes it quite difficult. So for interferometry, you need two laser bundles. To then at one point, you look at the phase difference between those bundles. Um, so what does LISA exactly look like then? Do you have two stations, you have three stations, and what kind of laser beams do you use in LISA? So there's a three-satellite uh, instrument, and beams will go all the way around, so from A to B, B to A, but also from A to C, C to A, and B to C, etc. So in that way, basically, um, different combinations of light can be made. And the, the good thing here is that actually the light is not really combined to get the interferometry as is done in optical or radio interferometry, but really the phase of the light is recorded so that you can sort of add and subtract all the combinations later on down on Earth in your analysis. When a gravitational wave passes through these laser beams, you can see the phase difference and you can detect a gravitational wave. Can you also determine where the gravitational wave came from? What kind of resolution does LISA give us? Yeah, so. As soon as you see a wave, you cannot really tell where it comes from. The The good thing why still we can actually pinpoint sources with LISA is that the, this detector is in an orbit around the sun and is trailing the Earth. So if the source is on long enough, then actually uh, the changing position of LISA, but also the changing orientation, because it's it's like a triangle, but it's slowly rotating in, in space, and actually the sensitivity of the instrument is different if you if a wave comes perpendicular to the plane of the triangle or in the in the same uh, plane so then over a year or part of a year already they can actually work out where the source comes from and of course it's a, it's a it's a combination of how long you can see the source and how bright it is or how how strong the signal is how well the position can be determined but typically about a degree, sort of a, a little bit bigger than the area of the moon, is uh, something that is quite uh, feasible and sometimes even smaller. So, And the, the good thing is that if you want then to do, look at the same area in the sky with optical telescopes or X-ray or radio, then these sizes are still quite large, but you can imagine that you can actually find the gravitational wave source with electromagnetic radiation if there is any. So LISA will be set in space. Does that limit the lifetime of the experiment? Uh, yes, although it's not like some other space experiments where there's actually um, um, 
something that is slowly going away, like liquid nitrogen or something. Um, in space, everything at some point breaks, and this means there is a, a limited lifetime. Uh, so this also makes it very complicated. Because it's an interferometer, if one of the satellites would fail, you would immediately have a problem. So that's one of the reasons why actually LISA will be quite an expensive mission, because there have to be a lot of sort of backup systems, etc., to make sure that not too soon the thing will fail. Plans are that it should be operational for nominal three years or five years, but people expect that actually up to 10 years would be quite feasible. Do we know for sure that gravitational waves exist? Well, that depends what you call for sure. Uh, we have very good evidence that they exist, and the reason is that there is a number of actually binary pulsars, so there's radio pulsars that are very compact objects in binaries, and the orbits of these binaries change slowly, and this has been measured with using the radio telescopes. So we know how the orbits change. And this exactly is the way that Einstein predicts that they should change by sending out gravitational waves. But of course it means we haven't actually detected the gravitational wave. So you could imagine that there is an alternative theory that in some way exactly predicts the same change in the orbit, but not emitting gravitational waves, or at least not in the same way or something like that. So we're not completely sure. So you mentioned there are ground-based gravitational wave detectors. So they've never detected gravitational waves? Well, yeah. So there are ground-based detectors, but they're actually only just operational. They started maybe a year ago or something like that. And there, as I said before, the technical challenge is maybe even worse than for the space-based missions. Uh, so 15 years ago or 20 years ago, almost, that these projects were planned. So one of the projects is... a. Uh, U.S. project called LIGO, there's a European, French, uh, Italian project called Virgo, and a German project called GEO. When they were planned 20 years ago, uh, I think a lot of people said these guys are crazy. There's no way they can do it, because you have to measure to such incredible accuracy, and it means basically that you have to isolate your instrument from all the background noises from cars driving by, etc., etc. Uh, but people have, in the last two years or so, reached the sensitivity that they predicted they would reach 20 years ago. And this is extremely impressive that they managed to do that. There's all these stories coming around that they have weird signals that they don't understand. And then in Germany, where the thing is close to Hamburg, it turns out these, these are measurements of the, the waves breaking on the shore of northern Germany. Or they had in the US, they had things that they couldn't really see what happened. And it turned out that people were logging uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away in uh, in Canada, and the trees falling down would actually give such a signal that you would see it in the detectors. I mean, this is the level of things happening. So the ground-based detectors have never seen a gravitational wave, but they do have the sensitivity. Do we expect them to observe a gravitational wave anytime soon? Uh, we are not completely sure. So the sad thing for the people building these ground-based detectors is that people always thought that uh, there would be signals at the sensitivity level that they have now. But over the last 20 years, we have learned more about the universe, and we now think that actually this type of signals that they are looking for, which I'll explain in a second what they are, are actually more rare than we thought. So actually, they might have to wait for a year, or they might actually have to upgrade their instruments, which they are doing at the moment, in order to get the first real detections. 
So that actually brings me to the difference between ground-based and space-based. And one of the weird things of gravitational waves, different from uh, electromagnetic waves, in electromagnetic waves, at least in relatively short wavelengths, typically the wavelength of the uh, light is determined by the temperature of the object. And then, for instance, if you look at radio, you get what we call non-thermal emission, where the wavelength is determined by all kinds of other things. But in none of these cases is the wavelength actually related to the size of the object. And that's exactly what happens in gravitational waves. So the wavelengths of the gravitational waves is directly related to the size of the object. So big objects make big waves, and big waves have low frequencies, and small objects have small waves and have high frequencies. In order to actually measure the waves, your instrument has to be at least not an awful lot smaller than the waves you try to measure, because then it becomes very difficult. So the very big objects can never be measured with uh, instruments on Earth, because Earth is not very big, although you might think differently, but in terms of the universe, it's not very big. So the type of objects that can be measured from Earth are very small objects, like neutron stars, which only have a diameter of something like 10 kilometers. So that's close to this five kilometers. So that's why, so these, uh, these ground-based detectors, they are sensitive to uh, neutron stars, and then you have to have two, and together they have to be of the size of kilometers, so you can only see them at the moment that actually two neutron stars sort of collide. And this, in a binary, they get closer and closer, and we call that merging. So merging neutron stars are the type of uh, sources that the ground-based detectors see. In space, if you have five million kilometers, you can see objects that are millions of kilometers. And that means that small stars, like we have white dwarfs, and that's my area of expertise, they are the size of the Earth, of the whole Earth, they can be observed, but also very massive black holes, because black holes are also very small, but if you make them very massive, they still become big. So very big black holes, and then you have to think of black holes maybe 100,000 or a million times more massive than our sun. So this is really serious stuff. So, so the, you're talking about the Schwarzschild radius of the black hole then? That's right, yes. So basically, it's the size of the, uh, the the separation between the two objects in a binary if we simplify life a little bit. You've done research in this as well. You've looked at foreground objects that Lisa can observe. Uh, you've already said a little bit what kind of objects there are. Can you tell us about, about what the sky would look like for Lisa? Do you have, would you be able to give us an impression of that? Yeah, so actually that's the, the, that's why we want to go into space because contrary to on Earth, we know for sure that as soon as there is an instrument in space, it will see gravitational waves. It might be, of course, that the Earth-based detectors, which are further ahead technologically, might detect them first, but it's not really, it's not really a race. I mean, this is, we're, we're trying to understand the universe. But we know for sure there are sources. So there are, very, there are basically three main categories of sources. And to start with the, the most modest is we know a number of white dwarf, white dwarf binaries. So you take two white dwarfs in a very compact binary that they're almost touching, so to say. And then you have to imagine something like the Earth-Moon system. But instead of the Earth and the Moon, you have two white dwarfs that are much more massive. And because of the Kepler laws, that means they go around each other more quickly because they have the same uh, distance. So they would go around each other maybe in 10 minutes or 5 minutes or 20 minutes. And these are gravitational wave sources that Lisa will see. And we know a handful of these sources from electromagnetic observations. We have inferred that there's maybe several million of these in the, well, actually, we think a hundred million of these in the galaxy, and Lisa will see plenty of these sources. 
The other thing Lisa will see is objects that have to do with supermassive black holes. And the closest supermassive black hole we know is in the center of our galaxy. There's a 4 million solar mass black hole. And the first thing that you could imagine is if you have a small object, like a, a white dwarf or a neutron star or a black hole, that's actually sort of falling in that uh, a supermassive black hole. That also will give gravitational radiation that Lisa will see. And then finally, there are galaxies far and far away, and often they merge, so the two galaxies actually collide, and then we believe that the two black holes in the centers of these galaxies, if they both have one, would also merge. And these would be the ultimate LISA sources, because there is an enormous amount of energy that becomes available when these black holes merge. This is the brightest or the most energetic event in the universe ever, and uh, they would be seen basically all the way through the whole universe. And this will allow us to see the universe in a way that we've never seen it before and study all kinds of new physics then? That's certainly right, yes. So there's a number of things. One of the things is that in the last 20 years, I guess, we have developed that we think that all the structure in the universe, so the, the galaxies, etc., have formed from basically smashing together small bits into larger bits. And we also have found that many of the galaxies, even relatively small galaxies, have a black hole in their center. It's unclear how they get there, but anyway, they are there. So we actually think that, and this is called hierarchical structure formation, that in a way small bits are merged together to, to larger bits. And these are will, in the, the only direct way, actually see whether this is true. So that's that's a, a, a new astrophysics side. The other thing is that actually in the merger process of these two black holes, there were all kind of interesting things happening that are predicted by general relativity. And this is the type of uh, sort of the limit to of general relativity where we know that things happen that normally don't happen in uh, the, the stuff we can see. So we can actually test general relativity to limits that, well, way and way beyond we know now. So Lisa sounds like a fantastic experiment. Is there any time scale at which Lisa will actually be launched? At what stage are we at the moment? Uh, yeah, so there is a time scale, which is uh, 2018, but uh, we have to be a bit realistic. I mean, the time scale used to be 2010, uh, which it clearly is not going to be. The problem is that it's technologically quite challenging. It's expensive. So it's uh, it's actually a project that's joined between the European Space Agency, ESA, and the Americans uh, in NASA. So this has advantages and disadvantages. And one of them is that it's actually complicated to get everybody in thinking exactly along the same lines. And, well, money is is hard to find. I mean, there are many other very interesting space projects uh, that are also very expensive. So it's, it's really a matter of prior setting priorities. So let's talk about something else. I understand that some time ago you were involved in tracking whale sharks. Uh, how did that come about? Well, involved is not really the right word. It's, it is a very interesting story because it actually has some, has some relation to Lisa because I was at a conference related to Lisa sources and I had to tell about my white dwarfs and why it's interesting that Lisa sees these. Um, and I there met a guy I knew before. He's actually a radio astronomer and uh, um, he invited me to come with him to... Uh, to the pub and to have a beer with some friends of his. And then it turned out that one of them was uh, thinking about a problem because they were uh, trying to sort of follow and to make an inventory of these whale sharks, which are big 
fishes that uh, are maybe endangered, but it was always difficult to, to, to see because you sometimes saw them, but you never knew which it was because they didn't wear name tags. So then they took pictures and they have this distinct pattern of uh, spots, white spots on a darker background. And it turned out that actually the way they were doing this was just the, taking these photographs and putting them on the ground and then trying to say, oh, that, got, that looks like that one and that looks like that one. So we talked about that and I said, well, you know, this sounds quite a bit like the problem astronomers have. If you take a picture of the sky, you have a dark background with light spots and uh, it's, you often want to know which star is which. So you have to compare it to another image of the sky. And actually people have learned that this is a nightmare to do by hand, which these guys were experiencing themselves as well. So they wrote software and the software basically is is well, it's not very simple, but it, you can imagine what you do is you take uh, every time you take uh, the nearest neighbors of uh, of uh, one spot and you make triangles and these triangles have a certain shape. And uh, then you can actually compare all the triangles and in that way you can find the best match of two images. So this is something they could use. And so that was that. And we had a very nice evening. And then a few years later, actually, I found out that they had taken this quite seriously and they had developed this. And the, one of the problems is that these whale sharks, they, they are living creatures and they are 3D. So actually, if you take an image, it's not always exactly the same because the projection is different. And actually, due to muscles and stuff, the, the, the relative positions of the spots might change a little bit. So they actually did a lot of work to implement this. And they, actually, the, the astronomer... Uh, radio astronomer guy was uh, very involved in doing that and they apparently now use this to uh, to track these objects or to actually basically recognize the, the the whale sharks so that's a very nice application so you can actually now track whale sharks when people take pictures of them they can match it with other whale sharks and they can track them all over the world then yeah so the idea is now that so there's a project uh, led by uh, i think he's australian actually i don't think i ever met that guy who's leading this uh, and they have a database and you can send in pictures and then they can basically use this technique to match the pictures to their database and say oh this picture must be Joe or must be you know, Fred or I don't know what they call them. That's much better than giving them name tags, I imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so too. They're beautiful animals. Well, thank you very much for this interview, guys. No problem. Thank you very much. So thank you very much, Roy and Hayson Elements, for that fascinating interview. And we look forward to the results, uh, particularly coming from the non-astronomy uh, realm of uh, tracking whale sharks around the world. Exciting stuff. Now let's move on to your feedback. Emails. So we have emails from Patrick, Michael Van Voren, John Hughes, Herman Talviti, and Roger Gray. And Roger Gray was asking us if we could get some interviews about the South Pole Telescope, um, about observations of the cosmic microwave background in polarized light. I think he might be talking about the quiet experiment. So next time we, we get hold of someone from the quiet experiment, we'll grab them and stick them in front of a microphone and, and interview them. So our own forum at the Jotcast is also very busy. And we have some wonderful ideas from Earth Unit, who shows, uh, who has told us about a plugins for Google Earth with which you can trace the satellites. Yep, and they also mentioned, talking about the cosmic microwave background again, some um, data release from the NASA's Lambda website, which lets you look at the cosmic microwave background in Google Sky, which is, is quite interesting. To do, and you can hunt for Stephen Hawking's initials in the cosmic microwave background. The problem is, once you've seen them, you can't not see them. 
And EarthUnit also pointed out that there's a wonderful website showing live television from the International Space Station. We will put a link on the show notes where you can find it. Or you can search on Google for NASA TV, and that's the same website. Actually, it was quite interesting this month, because the International Space Station had a near miss from some space debris from the recent satellite collision. So they were there was live coverage, and people were on Twitter, twittering away, telling us what, what was happening. Um, and all the astronauts went into a Soyuz to get ready to escape if they needed to. In so. space, nobody can hear you scream. <laughs> yeah, but they can hear you Twitter. <laughs> The Jodcast group on Facebook has been active as well, with Joe Snyder giving us a fantastic review of some observations that he made of Venus, Comet, Luland, and Ceres. Thank you very much for that indeed. It's great. More feedback from the Jodcast forum from Hoyluga and Abigeg. Thank you very much for your comments. So if you want to take part in the discussions on the forum, go and sign up at forum.jodcast.net. There's a link on the main Jodcast website as well. And there are several other ways in which you can keep in touch with us. You can Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. Or join us at Facebook, jodcast.net slash Facebook. And of course you can see our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash jodcast. And speaking of videos, the Jodcast videoed a lecture by Professor Peter McCann on the mathematics of the mind. Now that will be ready for you before the next edition of the Jodcast. Check out our video feed at jodcast.net. Also you can check it out on youtube.com slash jodcast. And hopefully that won't melt our servers like the videos did over Christmas. So while it's not exactly on astronomy, it's on fascinating science, we do hope that you take a chance to watch it. It's quite long, it's about 47 minutes long, but it's crammed full of all those fascinating things about how your brain uses mathematics. And there's some very good illusions in there as well. And some good illusions too, yeah, so it's good fun. Indeed, so that brings us to the end of the Jodcast for this episode. We would like to thank Gijs Nelemans... Mike Simmons and Douglas Pierce Price for their contributions. Until next time, Jod on. Jod on. Jod on. Jod on.